Now be seated, please. As we make our way and continue our way through Genesis and the life of Jacob now in particular, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 32nd chapter of Genesis, Genesis 32, and there we'll pick up at verse 1 and uh, make our way through the 21st verse. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 1. As you're turning, let me ask you this. Have you ever faced something that was frightening? If I asked all of you here who have faced something frightening, something scary, some frightening situation, dreadful news perhaps, or something maybe a little less subtle like an approaching bully, I say if I, have, if I asked all of you here who have faced such a situation to raise your hands, every honest person here would, would do so, I believe. In fact, some of you, I expect, would be tempted to put both hands in the air. Life in a fallen world is like that. It's full of fears, full of things that frighten us, that take hold of our hearts and grip them, that frighten us, almost paralyze us sometimes. But how have you dealt with those fears in those dreadful moments? Think back on, on one of them. How did you respond when that terrible news was given you? What was the first thing you reached for, the first thing you did when the dread set in? Let's watch and see what an old saint, or a saint from old times anyway, an old saint at the time probably as well, did when the cloud suddenly rolled over him and looked particularly black on the immediate horizon. But first, let us go to prayer. Our Father, once again, we confess to you our need of you, our desperate need of your spirit to come and to illumine this word that he himself also inspired when Moses uh, penned them originally by the Spirit's in inspiration. Surely, O oh God, if you have written this word, if you have preserved this word and brought it uh, through all of these ages to us this morning, if you love your people, and you certainly do, and you have told us that you will speak to us and make your will known to us, then, our Father, we simply ask you now to fulfill thy own promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 32, we begin at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now remember that Isaac, the father of these two, Jacob and Esau, Isaac had prophesied in his blessing to Jacob that his brother would serve him. Esau would serve Jacob. But we, what we have already here are hints of fear in Jacob's voice. Rather than holding on to that thought that Esau was to be his servant, uh, Jacob immediately takes himself the subservient position, calling himself Esau's servant and, and Esau his lord. 
And this goes beyond even uh, expressions of ancient oriental courtesy. Indeed, judging from what's going to develop in the passage before us, it's not difficult to imagine already that here are hints of fear on Jacob's part, fear of the brother whom he, you, you will remember he has offended and deeply by stealing his birthright and stealing his blessing 20 years prior. But if there is a hint of fear in Jacob's message here, then the news from the returning messengers will transform that fear into dark dread. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. It is, of course, an eerie return that the messengers make. No word from Esau. Silence. Just news that he and 400 men are headed Jacob's way. Is Esau coming to give his brother a, a royal welcome home? Or does he come to make war which will result in a royal disaster for Jacob? But if he's coming to avenge himself, why send the messengers back alive? Or is he stringing Jacob along by doing so before dropping his axe upon him? Jacob's mind, you know, must have been whirling at this point. Indeed, verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. Now the gifts that Jacob gives to Esau here are, they're extravagant by any measure. It was typical in the ancient Orient to give gifts, especially to great men, before you actually came to meet them. So on the face of it, you might certainly interpret this as simply the standard practice of Jacob, Jacob's day. Or you might interpret this as a message from Jacob to 
Esau, that Jacob was to be Esau's vassal, his servant, the subservient of the two in the relationship. Or perhaps he's symbolically sort of returning the blessing he had stolen from Esau. But whatever interpretation, whatever the symbolism, the motive will be made clear for us by the narrator. Verse 17, he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp. G.K. Chesterton once noted that the most universal experience of mankind is an uneasy conscience. We might add that another universal experience of mankind is fear. And the two are not unrelated. In fact, from the very entrance of sin into the world, they had everything to do with one another. One flowed logically and necessarily from the other. When our father Adam sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, a rush of new and terrible emotions and feelings and attitudes and experiences came over him and his wife Eve. Shame, for instance, was their first reaction and experience. Guilt. But closely behind came fear. Dread now mark the relationship between them and God, a relationship once filled with joyful love. Fear brought on by a guilty conscience. Thus, as Shakespeare has it on Hamlet's lips, conscience doth make cowards of us all. This was Jacob's problem. He knew what he had done. Hardly a day passed, but that he remembered the sins he had committed against his father and particularly against his brother. And now, though he had tried so hard to keep his movements a secret, absconding with his wives and children and their flocks so as to elude his uncle Laban, yet his band has not escaped the attention, the notice of Esau as he approached. It was a day that Jacob knew was coming. No matter how hard he tried to deny it to himself, with every step closer to home, he hears like pounding in his ears louder and louder the name Esau. Esau, Esau, he will have to face him. There's no way around it. And all Jacob's mind's eye can see is the look on Esau's face that day after the truth had sunk in on his older brother that his birthright had been taken from him. 
And worse, the look he never saw, but could easily imagine the murderous face of his brother who had lost not only his birthright, but who had, had stolen from him also the very blessing itself. It had been 20 years, but it was just like yesterday to Jacob's mind. And with every sound in the brush, with every motion of the dust, every little cloud of dust, he strained to see if it were Esau come to ambush him. He could remember well those words of his mother. She would send for him when Esau's anger had cooled and it was safe to return. Those words never came. And as far as Jacob knew, Esau was still breathing after his hide. The only thing worse than the vague prospect of meeting up with Esau one day was the knowledge that now he most certainly will, at any time, Esau would come, appear on the horizon, galloping into the camp, Esau, and 400 men with him. What to do? Well, first thing, step number one, panic! <laughs> Which is exactly what he does. Quick, divide the camp in two. At least then when Esau strikes, half of us will die and maybe the other half will live. Driven by fear. Fear driven by guilt. Jacob does what Jacob does best. Comes up with a plot, with a scheme, with a surefire plan to survive. And isn't that exactly what you and I do when faced with some fearful prospect, particularly if it also involves a guilty conscience. And even when it doesn't. When facing some threat, some terrible affliction, some, some fearful prospect or event, a disease, some particular challenge, the first thing we do is panic. And out of panic, we plan. With frenetic pace, we start drawing up a game plan and, and start putting it into place in a frenzy. This is what I'll do. This is how we'll handle this. This is the course of action we'll take. This is the treatment. This is the solution. That's our natural, our sinfully natural inclination in a crisis. Why? For this simple reason. Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. We forget. Another symptom of life after the fall. Oh, how we forget. Jacob certainly did. I don't know if you caught it, but certainly one of the most understated events in all of Scripture. But we read it there in the first couple of verses in the reading this morning. With the angels, Jacob had met along the way with God's angels. I thought about asking you to raise your hands a little while ago to indicate if you had ever feared something or feared someone. I wonder how many hands would rise if I asked you how many of you have come face to face, been met by a host of the angels of God. I doubt that any of your hands would rise, and if one of them would, I'd like to talk to you after the service. But if you ever had, you'd remember it, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you remember coming face to face with a host of angels? 
God had shown his host of angels to Jacob. He had seen them. And almost involuntarily, he had burst out with, this is God's camp. And he called the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now, why does Jacob call it two camps? That's not altogether clear. It may have been that he was speaking about God's camp and his camp as two different camps. Uh, in a very interesting way, though, A.W. Pink muses on this passage and imagines two camps of angels coming to meet him. Now notice now, not just to appear to him, to meet him. Remember, Jacob had just escaped. It seemed like by the skin of his teeth, one terrible enemy, Laban. And now virtually at any moment, he'll be facing an enemy who's coming head on. Pink imagines two companies of angels, one behind Jacob and one before him. In other words, God is making it plain to Jacob that wherever his enemies may be, wherever they may come, there he and his host go before him and go after him, to hem him in completely, to protect his child at every turn and from every direction. God would be his early help, is the point. And indeed, he had proved himself by protecting him from Laban, even appearing to Laban, you remember, in a dream. But no sooner, no sooner has, has this vision been, uh, well, not vision, this been seen by Jacob, the angels meeting him, but he forgot. In fact, he forgot all of it. He forgot about Bethel. Remember that? Way back, 20 years ago, a ladder appearing to him and from heaven to earth where first he saw those angels. He forgot that. He forgot Bethel. He forgot 20 years of the Lord blessing him and Haran. He forgot the protection of the Lord over him from Laban's wrath. He forgot it all. In an instant, he forgot it all. So filled, so captivated and captured was his mind with this threat. Esau. It sets him back on his old slogan again, that, that God-dishonoring proverb. You know how it goes. God helps those who help themselves. Make a plan. Take some action. It's only natural. You and I do the same thing almost by instinct. We forget all that God has done in the past all of God's promises, God's infinite power. We forget that his angels are around us all the time. How soon we forget and fear. And that fear and the guilt that so often it stands upon it paralyzes us. Oh, that doesn't mean we can spin our wheels and even move things around in our lives like Jacob did in the camp. As a matter of fact, we either accomplish nothing in the process or trusting in ourselves, we actually weaken ourselves. Did you see Jacob do that? In his fear, he divides his camp. Immobilized by fear, he makes himself only the weaker. And in his case, by guilt-born fear. And alas, there are many Christians today who are in Jacob's camp. All they can see is their past failure continues to throw itself up before their face 
year after year, even week after week, and it weakens them and it defeats them from the inside out. They are children of the king of kings, but they have forgotten, blinded by their fear, blinded by their guilt. Donald Gray Barnhouse years ago wrote to such people, you who read this have, the sa- have some name for your fears. Stop right now and cease to rationalize your fears. Ask God to turn you inside out and deliver you from what you have excused as an inferiority complex. In- inferiority complex. As though a child of God destined to sit upon the throne of God and to be like the Son of God should be filled with anguish at the memory of sin, some sin long ago thrust out of sight, which is not clamoring for recognition. In other words, God has dealt with your past sin. He has forgiven it. He has washed it away by nothing less than the blood of his own son. And it is no longer to master you. In fact, though you may never have seen them like like Jacob did, you too, Christian, have angels, ministering spirits, the scripture calls them, who serve you, who are to inherit salvation. Well, Jacob forgot, and you forget, but there is a bright side to the story. Jacob doesn't forget forever. He may have started out by forgetting, but then by God's grace he remembers. It must be God. It it must be God's power, not his. It must be God's protection, not his piddly plans. But how to tap into that power? Now, how how to call on that protection? How to engage and lay claim to these promises of God? One way. One way. Prayer. And that's exactly what Jacob does. He prays. And praying, he finds the power. And praying, he finds the protection. In fact, he finds all that he needs to face the unknown future through prayer. I'll leave it to you to take a part of this Sabbath afternoon to read and consider more closely the content of this prayer. It is in many ways a model prayer. But the point this morning is that Jacob was learning and you and I must learn too that God is ever ready to help those who have learned that they cannot help themselves. Who have replaced and are replacing every day more and more the old slogan, God helps those who help themselves, with a new certainty from Isaiah that God gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Or who with the Apostle Paul have learned to say, my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And how does God deign to supply your every need, to help the faint, to increase your strength? Truly, this this is the wonder. It's quite simple and simply by prayer. By prayer. By the act 
of asking him to do it, he does it. In the Lord's kind providence this week, I came to a chapter in John's Pipe, John Piper's book for ministers, which starts with this counsel. Prayer, John Piper writes, is the coupling of primary and secondary causes. It is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. How astonishing it is that God wills to do his work through people. It is doubly astonishing that he ordains to fulfill his plans by being asked to do so by us. God loves to bless his people, but even more, he loves to bless them in answer to prayer. He goes on in a piece of counsel that is just as timeless for the pew as it is for the pulpit. A cry for help from the heart of a childlike pastor, we might add any childlike Christian, is sweet praise in the ears of God. Nothing exalts him more than the collapse of self-reliance, which issues in passionate prayer for help. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me, Psalm 50. Prayer is the translation of a thousand different words of a single sentence. Apart from me, that is apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You see, Christian, everything you do, everything you do apart from remembering the source of all strength, everything you seek to accomplish apart from prayerful dependence on the Lord, everything you do that way comes to no more than what you can accomplish apart from him, which added up really amounts to nothing. Jacob has come to learn that and is coming to learn it more and more, which is exactly where you and I must find ourselves more and more. You've learned that apart from Christ, you can do nothing, but you must learn it more and more. And so must I. One of you reminded me just this week on the telephone in a conversation about how we're prone, even seasoned Christians among us are bent, not so much to say it outright as to simply and so subtly live by the notion that when all else fails, pray, First manage, then maneuver, then tack on a prayer. And as A.C. Dixon, the famous Baptist pastor and evangelist who accomplished great things in both America and England during those famous battles, those heated days between fundamentalism and modernism or liberalism at the turn of the last century, once put it, quote, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. 
you'll remember that years and years and years William Wilberforce fought in Parliament for the abolition of slavery in England, the slave trade in England. He, like the rest of us, however, like Jacob, was tempted to be forgetful of the most basic need and replace the power of prayer with the pea shooter of, of busyness and activity. But having come to this realization about himself, he first lamented and then exhorted, thusly himself. This perpetual hurry of business and company ruins me in soul, if not in body. More solitude and early hours. I suspect I have been allotting habitually too little time to religious exercises as private devotion and religious meditation, scripture reading, etc. Hence I am lean and cold and hard. I had better allot two hours or an hour and a half daily. I have been keeping two late hours and hence have, been, uh, have had but a hurried half hour in the morning to myself. Surely the experience of all good men confirms the proposition that without due measure of private devotions, the soul will grow lean. But all may be done through prayer, almighty prayer. I'm ready to say, and why not? For that it is almighty is only through the gracious ordination of the God of loving truth. On then, pray, pray, pray. Or as R.A. Torrey, who between 1902 and 1905 preached the gospel to more than 15 million people in 11 different countries once famously put it. Pray for great things. Expect great things. Work for great things. But above all, pray. Amen.